When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where we start the new week with the biggest dose of information we've gotten yet on how Democrats will pay for it. The $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. We're going to look at proposed tax hikes for corporations and investors, and we'll get into the fine print just ahead with Bloomberg tax reporter Allison Versbrill and more with Congressman French Hill. Republican from Arkansas, who serves on the House Financial Services Committee. The panel today, classic Bloomberg sound on panel with our politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. And later, Secretary of State Antony Blinken being grilled on the Afghan withdrawal. It's still underway now and we will be joined by foreign relations expert Lester Munson. Lots of cover today. We've got our green visors on today after the House Ways and Means Committee released its proposals For tax hikes to pay for the reconciliation plan, the corporate tax rate rising to 26.5%. News you may have woken up to on Bloomberg Radio TV, maybe the terminal, the capital gains tax at 25%. And more where that came from, for the wealthy, for crypto, even for people who smoke. And joining us to talk about it is an in-house experts, Bloomberg tax reporter, Allison Versbrill. Allison, thanks for being with us here. It's an interesting kind of menu of options since most all of them fall short of what President Biden was calling for, certainly with regard to the corporate tax rate and the capital gains tax rate. How do lawmakers in the House, Democrats in the House, make up for it when you're trying to get to three and a half trillion? So I think there were several big revenue raisers that weren't included in the House Democrats plan so far, at least. Um, Mm -hmm. We could still see some amendments. One of those was a, you know, a capital gains tax that would be imposed on millionaires at death um, on any appreciated assets that they hold until death. Um, The Senate has pretty much indicated that this is still very much on the table. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden, you know, this morning sent me a statement saying that this is still something that he'd really like to consider. Um, There was also an omission of a 15% minimum tax on the profits that companies report to their shareholders. So this is, um, you know, a tax on financial reporting numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The president had previously proposed this uh, tax as well, and it's aimed specifically at companies like Amazon who pay 
you know, historically low effective tax rates by kind of racking up a bunch of tax breaks. Um, so that was something that was noticeably absent. The House also has not included um, bank reporting requirements that would essentially have these financial institutions report more information to the IRS uh, as a way to beef up enforcement. And that in particular, the White House has estimated um, as potentially bringing in $463 billion in revenue huh. over 10 years. So I guess now, here's my question, Allison, as we walk through all of this stuff, if, if the Ways and Means plan that was released today was actually passed and, say, add the dynamic scoring that they even referred to, would it pay for the bill? Would it reach $3.5 trillion? No. So, you know, currently it doesn't seem like that's adding up, so they will need to find some other revenue raisers. Um, and like I said, the Senate is still considering a number of items, including excise taxes on stock buybacks. Yeah. Um, so there's plenty that that's still on the table right now. And this is really just kind of an opening shot for Democrats. Um, so we'll have to see how this shapes up over the next couple of weeks. Well, so much can change from here. Uh, thank you, Allison Firstbrill, Bloomberg tax reporter, who's I'm sure had a very busy day. And joining us to talk about it more is Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, who serves on the House Financial Services Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. As always, you were in the House uh, when Republicans passed President Trump's tax cuts in 2017, right? Are they now being reversed? Well, Joe Biden, God, Joe, it's good to be with you. Joe Biden campaigned on reversing those. He said he wanted to do away with the Trump tax cuts. Mm -hmm. That's why I think Allison's right that both in the House and in the Senate, there are many more tax increases that will be proposed beyond the ones that Richard Neal noted today, corporate tax and the capital gains tax. So he's making good on his campaign promise. I just wonder if you've actually seen this uh, this draft uh, that we saw from the the Ways and Means Committee today. Would that do away with essentially the work uh, that you got done in 2017? Well, it would certainly hurt small businesses. You know, this is National Small Business Week, and President Biden campaigned on not raising taxes on people that made less than four hundred thousand dollars. And I think by virtue of the reversals that he's showing today, he's yeah. obviously not willing to live up to that. He's going to raise taxes on working people, make it harder to start a business, harder to do investing in small business and venture capital, and imposing more regulatory mandates. So that's not to be unexpected when you are also proposing to spend $3.5 trillion on top of the $5 trillion that we spent to fight COVID-19 last year, which is on top of the normal four and a half trillion dollars that the government spends every year to run its operations. I can't keep track of any of this anymore, to be honest with you, but we'll see where we end up at the end of this debate. Congressman, I just wonder the real question I guess I have for you is as a Republican in the House and, and one with a focus on finance. Do you want it to affect these proposals? Are you trying to get involved in this debate or are you basically waiting on the floor, waiting to vote no on this whole thing? Well, look, here's the bottom line. The Democrats control the Senate procedure led by Bernie Sanders on the three and a half trillion and a compromise group on that infrastructure bill. And over in the House, though, we have no control. Nancy Pelosi controls the votes, controls the amendments. Process, so you feel like a spectator here? The committee. Yeah, I think there's an old rule about the House, Joe, which is the majority party runs the House and the minority party watches. Uh, that's sort of the tradition in the American House of Representatives. But that doesn't mean we don't push back on bad ideas in tax policy, regulatory policy, housing policy. 
uh, because that's our obligation to our constituents. And we want the best policy for our country and not go down the wrong road, which is what I think Senator Sanders and Joe Biden are proposing. Talking with Congressman French Hill on Bloomberg Sound On, Democrats, as I'm sure you saw on the Ways and Means, uh, say they also plan to undo the cap on the SALT deduction. I don't want to get too wonky here, although, you know, I love doing that. I just I know that it involved a lot of great debate with between moderate and progressive Democrats. The state and local tax deduction was capped at 10 percent in the 2017 law. Would you support this move to undo that cap? Well, here's what we did. Uh, that was a strong compromise between tax states that tax people heavily in property yeah. taxes and income taxes like New York and California mm-hmm. and taxes uh, states that have a lighter touch like Texas. And property taxes were capped at $10,000. In my state of Arkansas, nine out of 10 taxpayers benefited and saw a lower rate and a lower tax owed because of that. What uh, the Democrats are doing is splitting their own votes on this tax proposal. New York, New Jersey, California, they want that cap lifted. Uh, The rest of the the states are somewhere in the middle on it. They don't feel as strongly. And then the progressive left, Ocasio-Cortez and others, don't believe it should be changed at all. Yeah, so well, she says it's a gift a to billionaires. This sounds like an all-news-is-local kind of story, Congressman. Well, it is. It's about uh, representing your constituents, uh, but it's also about the progressive left's agenda to promote socialist policies, bigger government. Government is a larger percentage of GDP, and that's the direction the progressive left wants to go. And therefore, uh, cutting people a break in New York, California, New Jersey doesn't fit in with that uh, uh, rubric that they have. You know, one debate you will be directly involved in is uh, is keeping the government funded as this reconciliation uh, comes together on on one side. There's got to be a continuing resolution. I understand at least it'll be in that form to fund the government. There's talk about funding for Afghanistan, uh, refugee resettlement. There's talk about uh, Hurricane Ida response, storm cleanup, and so forth. There's also, Congressman, and I don't have to tell you, talk about the debt ceiling. Do you agree with Democrats that it's it's worth hiking the debt ceiling to pay off the bills, in many cases, of the Trump administration? Well, traditionally, the debt ceiling is raised. It's up to the majority party to put that bill on the uh, House floor and the Senate floor and craft the proposal and get the votes for it. And I'm sure that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have that plan. I look forward to seeing what they actually propose as they propose to raise the debt ceiling before I make a final decision on it. But traditionally, look, America is not going to default on our Treasury obligations. Uh, That would be a bad policy and a bad idea, and we haven't done it. So I don't expect it to happen here. There's been some concern about the way it would be done, though, right? Should that be a a standalone bill that Democrats and Republicans can vote on? Or is is it fair to put it in with a government funding bill if it ends up in the CR? I would say I've seen it both ways in my short uh, six years in the House. So attaching a short-term debt ceiling uh, increase to a continuing resolution is not an unusual approach for the majority party to take. The point is that I think Americans don't want to see uh, this big march towards socialism, bigger government, government is a higher percentage of GDP, burdening our families with trillions of dollars of additional debt. And I think that's the debate you'll see vigorously carried on this fall. If you want to stop higher spending, higher taxes, Congressman French Hill, as as a member of the minority party, were you referring to a legislative uh, solution or, 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 or chance to affect this? Or do you mean just using the bully pulpit, having conversations like this one? 
Well, we have to use the bully pulpit when you're in the minority party, but we're also putting concrete proposals on the table to change the policy as proposed by Bernie Sanders. We're debating right now for seven hours plus today in the House Financial Services Committee, yeah. Maxine Waters' proposal to spend $320 billion new dollars on public housing and the related projects. We're making amendments. We're losing them because the Democrats are voting with the chairman. But we're making amendments to shape that, target it, make it more reform, reform the programs, and uh, carrying out our debate. And that's what we'll continue to do on tax policy, regulatory policy, and this spending policy. And staying engaged on the committee level, though, is is the point. That's the focus of Republicans right now. It is, critically so. Look, Nancy Pelosi is bringing the Bernie Sanders $3.5 trillion to the House to mark up as a reconciliation measure. And those debates are being had in every one of our standing committees of the House. Today is financial services. The uh, Allison reported on the work in the House Ways and Means Committee. And Republicans are carrying that debate for common sense policies that we think will take the government and the country in a better direction. Good to speak with you, Congressman. French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, member of the House Financial Services Committee with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. But what about Joe Manchin? That's what I was asked all morning on Bloomberg TV and radio as the senator from West Virginia drives the conversation for a second consecutive Monday. It's at least that many after making rounds on Sunday morning TV where he reiterated his feelings about reconciliation and the price tag. Here's Senator Manchin on CNN State of the Union talking with Dana Bash. Leader Chuck Schumer says he's moving, quote, full speed ahead with this package. Will he have your vote? And that's fine. He can't. He will not have my vote on 3.5. And Chuck knows that. And we've talked about this. Um, we've already put out 5.4 trillion. And we've tried to help Americans in every way we possibly can. And a lot of the help that we put out there is still there. And it's going to run clear until next year, 2022. What's the urgency? What's the urgency that we have? It's not the same urgency that we have with the American Rescue Plan. Manchin's getting all the print, but he's actually not alone. Senator Mark Warner threatened just last night to vote no if there wasn't more money for affordable housing. So this could all still change a lot and probably will. And we talk about it with the Sound On panel now, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, is Nancy Pelosi playing some sort of three-dimensional chess here that ends with this bill passing the House that also makes Senate Democrats happy? 
I think she's trying. She is in an unenviable position. And, you know, it was the weekend once again of Joe Manchin versus Bernie Sanders on all yeah. the talk shows. And, um, you know, the division lines are very clear. We heard from the progressive wing that they are not willing to play ball. It's going to be both of these or none of them, you know, if you believe what they're saying. And as you just said, Manchin has said absolutely not to a $3.5 trillion. So I do think she has, Nancy Pelosi has always some tricks up her sleeves. But I do think that that Democrats have to listen carefully to the concerns that he's expressing inflation debt, the timing here. And he talks about, do we really need to do this in a week? And then we already put out five point four trillion. So those are big concerns. He is not alone in that. And I do think they are listening because what the House Ways and Means Committee is talking about today is not nearly as expansive and robust, if you will, as the, you know, originally Democrats wanted. So they are listening. We are seriously in a midterm election year. They must. And Joe Manchin is going to keep their feet to the fire on this. Well, Rick, if if uh, Richard Neal, the, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, says, you know, Congressman Rick Davis, I've got the tax increases here, pays for the whole thing, three and a half trillion, albeit a little dynamic scoring. But what's the problem then if it's not deficit spending? Well, I think that uh, what they're trying to figure out is um, how are they going to raise all this that this revenue that, that is going to be acceptable to the Senate, as you were just talking with Jeannie. I mean, the the Senate is going to look at this and, and with a very clear set of eyes. And there's a really highly technical term that they use when you're dealing with the House and Senate tax writers, DOA, dead on arrival. Uh, and, and so they can say, here? yeah, they can say anything they want to say. But if Manchin and the other senators hold their line and say we're not going to agree to a $3.5 trillion budget uh, reconciliation bill, then it doesn't matter what the House uh, Ways and Means tax writers are going to do. Uh, so, so what they're doing is what Nancy Pelosi wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Build the bill, right? Set, mm-hmm. I want to be able to stand in the well of the House and say it's paid for. Go ahead, Senate. Uh, 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 do your will, but know that I've done my job and I've delivered to you what uh, the President of the United States and our party says we want. And and from that point on, frankly, the whole thing kind of goes in the toilet and um, and the Democrats do whatever they want to do with it. And it sounds to me like it's going to be a decidedly different bill. It goes in the toilet, says Rick Davis. Uh, I will take the congressman hat off for now. But so this is DOA in your in your view, Rick. And if that's the case, you get no bipartisan infrastructure either. Yeah, you're going to look at this and, and say, OK, now what's what what are we going to do to try and get a bill? Now, it doesn't mean there's no bill. You might be, get a one point five trillion dollar reconciliation bill. And a lot of Democrats in the House, if they want to have that, are going to have to eat crow and say, OK, all yeah. these charges we were going to make about like we weren't going to accept a, a, a diminished bill um, are going to be very embarrassing to the Democrats. And what's really key here is this is sort of Democrat on Democrat crime. I mean, like they're doing it to themselves. Uh, uh, again, we've talked about this in the past. I mean, yep. they, there should have been a deal cooked in private where the leadership could actually deliver on something, whether it was 3.5 trillion or 1.5 trillion or whatever. Um, and you're right, this does put into danger uh, a perfectly good bipartisan infrastructure bill that the country needs and can afford. And so uh, this could turn out to be positive for the Democrats if they can find a number that they can agree on and a policy to fit into it and then pass both the reconciliation and the tax and the uh, infrastructure bill. But right now it's looking bad. Well, they're dug in on both ends of, of the party here, Jeannie, because obviously Bernie Sanders says 
he's all he's all done. He's walking out. If it's not three and a half trillion dollars, but even in the House, you've got you've got AOC and and other progressives who are saying the same thing. Is it possible to crank this down? To a Joe Manchin level, still get the progressive Democrats to vote on it? Or is Rick right? This whole thing is DOA. I think it is still possible, but I have been skeptical all along. Even if they do tamp it down and Nancy Pelosi is able to lose, you know, just three of these progressives and keep everyone else on board and we get, you know, a $1.5 trillion reconciliation and the bipartisan goes forward. Mm-hmm. Imagine what this says to those progressives, for instance, who voted for Democrats with the understanding that this human infrastructure at a, at a $6 trillion was going to get passed and now they're looking at $1.5 trillion. You know, this is always the story, is that you elect people in our country to do something Something, they get to Congress and what comes out of the sausage making is not nearly what you expected. And then we wonder why people are so enchant- disenchanted with government. He's the highest ranking official from the Biden administration to testify on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in a long day here of grilling before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It's not over yet. Far from 50 lawmakers, I believe, all get a question. He said he would stay for everyone to get a question and they are still going as we speak, here's a taste. There's no evidence that staying longer would have made the Afghan security forces or the Afghan government any more resilient or self-sustaining. If 20 years and hundreds of billions of dollars in support, equipment, and training did not suffice, why would another year, another five, another 10? Speaking virtually, it is a hybrid hearing we should note and joining us to get into this a little bit more or a lot more in this case is Lester Munson, a foreign policy expert served at USAID, is a veteran of multiple congressional committees, including most recently staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is now principal at BGR Group, where he consults with foreign governments and from time to time programs like this one. Lester, welcome. How's the secretary been doing today? I think I saw a few campaign commercials uh, being filmed earlier in this hearing. Yeah, there's uh, it's quite a platform for uh, for all these voices. I think the secretary uh, is uh, he's manning up here. Uh, he's showing up. He's answering all the questions. That's good. Uh, some of his answers, I don't think, are really acceptable. I don't like the notion that there were no alternatives. I don't think that's a good line for him to be promoting. Uh, I don't like the way that he and other folks in the administration have blamed their predecessors or the Afghans for the situation we're in. But uh, to stay positive about the secretary, I think he's, uh, as you pointed out, the first one to show up in public and answer tough questions. Yeah, He, he deserves some kudos for that. We inherited a deadline, not a plan. Uh, one of the headlines from his opening remarks, his testimony, clearly a, uh, a well-rehearsed uh, bit of uh, language here, how important is it for this administration to remind people that this began, well, the wind down began in the last administration, or is it time to stop talking about that? No, I think it's fair to bring, I mean, the Trump administration made some bad decisions about uh, Afghanistan. Uh, their timetable, in fact, was worse than the Biden timetable. Uh, the Trump timetable would have had us out in May. Uh, notably, the Biden administration changed that timetable. So they say they inherited a timetable. They changed it. They extended. I don't. Be- yeah, I don't believe that they didn't inherit a plan. I think that's just nonsense. In fact, there are uh, very credible members of Congress, including Democrats, who offered their own very good plans for a smart way to leave Afghanistan. 
Uh, these are these include allies of the administration who are very upset with them. Yeah. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But I think um, uh, there's no question there's a little bit of blame that goes to both administrations. But really, this was executed by the Biden administration. At the end of the day, the story that is written about the withdrawal from Afghanistan will be a Joe Biden story. 124,000 people evacuated. The administration has been actively reminding people of how successful the airlift was, even though it was, of course, also marred by a horrible and tragic terror attack that claimed many lives. Uh, These evacuations are still ongoing, Lester. You've got the Secretary of State testifying about a U.S. withdrawal before Congress while also discussing our at least financial efforts to try to get more people out. How long can this go on for? Well, I think it's going to go on as long as there are Americans and American allies left in Afghanistan that we would like to get out. And there are a lot of them. Uh, The issue here is not the courage and the bravery and uh, the incredible work done by the Americans on the ground who were working the evacuation. No kudos to all of them. Great job uh, under the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, Clearly a very dangerous uh, situation. Americans uh, should be proud of their fellow countrymen who were there and working on this. The the question is about the timing, about Mm -hmm. leaving, pulling out our military assets before all Americans had been evacuated and before all of our Afghan allies had been evacuated. Yes, we brought a lot of people out. There are still hundreds or possibly thousands of the people we want out who are still in Afghanistan. They are potentially hostages for the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or worse is not at all a good situation. No one planned. No, no one uh, could have made a plan that resulted uh, in what we're seeing today. It is, it, is a, it is a very bad situation. Lester Munson, we just celebrated uh, a tough anniversary over the weekend. It was just, Saturday was a sad day for a lot of people here in Washington, in New York, in Pennsylvania, and just all over the country, people watching the images, listening to the names read. So many so many awful memories uh, came back. How much was that a motivation for not just this president, who wrapped things up at the end of August, but also then Donald Trump, President Trump, in, in scheduling the withdrawal so it did not coincide with that anniversary? Well, I think... Um, was that a motivation? You know, I, I hope it. I hope it was not. Uh, I think the Biden administration's decision initially to have the withdrawal deadline be September 11th was, was a huge mistake. Uh, they changed it subsequently to an earlier date, which was also a mistake. Uh, we should we should have had a conditions-based timetable for withdrawal. We should not have withdrawn until all of our folks had gotten out. Yes, September 11th was an emotional time, time of sadness. It was also a time of great inspiration. For Americans, we saw uh, particularly the passengers on Flight 93 who took direct action against terrorists in the face of impossible odds and saved probably hundreds or thousands of lives at the U.S. Capitol or the White House or elsewhere. Um, so you take from the 9-11 what you, what you put into it. Yes, it's a time for sadness. It's also a time for great inspiration. And, and the, for me, it's that the spirit of Americans is unbound and uh, we will will take on impossible tasks. I think to see it as a negative or to see it as a deadline to pull out of Afghanistan is just a huge mistake by this administration. And if that was what the previous administration was doing, also shame on them. Well, I appreciate your words on that. Lester Munson, a principal at government relations firm BGR Group, former staff director for 
the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Many thanks for the insights today. I do wonder what we're going to be thinking about this, though, in weeks and months from now. Will it even be top of mind? You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Interesting talking with Lester Munson there about Afghanistan, Blinken's testimony today, and how our attention was turned back to the tragic situation there as the daily deluge of news, you know, pulls our focus to something different every day. You start thinking now about where this story will be and where the nation's focus will be weeks and months from now. And we reassemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us for the rest of the hour. Jeannie, we've said more than once, people have short memories. And with time, you wonder how the Biden administration could be viewed differently when it comes to this decision to withdraw. That's right. You know, I do think it's going to stay very much in the news, not only because of the anniversary we just celebrated, but also because you've got Democratic-led congressional committees committed to investigating the withdrawal. Should Republicans take over a ways down the road, that will certainly continue. And right, they should investigate what happened. And, you know, I think I was struck today in particular by the juxtaposition of this investigation as we're seeing it unfold in the early stages versus January. With January 6th, you have Democrats wanting to focus narrowly on that day and Republicans wanting to expand out to other protests. You look at Afghanistan, Democrats want to expand two decades. What did all the presidents do that contributed to this? Who's at fault more broadly versus Republicans wanting to focus narrowly on the withdrawal? It's an interesting juxtaposition. And as Gregory Meek said, you see a lot of domestic politics injected into foreign policy here. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeannie. Rick, is it Republicans' job then to keep the hearings rolling as long as they can to the midterms to keep this front of mind? Or is it possible people wake up a year from now and say, thank God we're out, Joe Biden? You know, I think there'll be a split in that. I mean, the longer we go from the problems associated with the withdrawal uh, that are on the top of everybody's mind, especially around 9-11 and the anniversary, uh, will fade over time. But look at the impact it's had already on Joe Biden's ballot. I mean, I hate talking about polling at this early stage, but uh, when you look at uh, a a drop of almost 10 percent of his job approval in over you know two weeks that's pretty fast and so i think the biden folks have to look at this and say hey we've got to claw our way out of this uh we're not in a good position to enter a midterm if we want to try and create a historical change and try to hold the house of representatives which is the only way they can get his agenda implemented well i know it was previously scheduled here Jeannie, but if you're gavin newsom you could use a little joe biden he's out there today in california helping to stump for the governor who faces a recall election tomorrow. Based on the polls, it doesn't look like Gavin Newsom necessarily needs the bump. Does does Joe Biden bring some credibility to the West Coast here? You know, Gavin Newsom seems to be if, and again, it's a big if at this point, if you believe the polls, he seems to be ahead. Of course, California Democrats have tremendous uh, numerical, uh, you know, they are tremendously, you know, more empowered out there than Republicans. So they have the numbers on their side, Um, you know, but I do think it is important for the president to go out there because 
Gavin Newsom's polls have gone up as he has nationalized this out of California to the broader uh, you know, country. And of course, if a Republican like Elder or anybody else was to knock him off, the implications nationally would be tremendous. I think Newsom holds on out there, but I think it's going to be critical to look at how much he wins by, what the turnout is. And of course, if it is a low turnout or if he just narrowly squeaks by, this is a bad sign for the Democrats. And that's why I think you see Biden out there today, Harris out there, Obama talking about yeah. this race, they know this is critically important to the Democrats as they go forward. So where are you on this one, Rick Davis? Does he need Joe Biden out there or does this actually potentially make Joe Biden look good? He kind of takes a West Coast swing. He's, of course, out there for a number of reasons, by the way, including uh, dealing with the wildfires through Idaho and, and he's going to Colorado on the on, and also this trip to California. Can he then say, hey, you know what? I helped close the deal for Gavin Newsom. I went out there and saved the day. Yeah, the wildfires have been going on for a long time. So I think this is uh, really scheduled around being in California to help Gavin Newsom and and try to avoid a recall. Uh, Look, I mean, Republicans and Democrats, there's twice as many Democrats as Republicans in California. Uh, It always looks closer than it's really going to be. That said, um, Republicans vote on Election Day. They're not big on uh, early ballots. Uh, Right now, the early ballots that have come in have the Democrats at about 55 percent, Republicans at 23. So if you're Gavin Newsom, you know, you you, you, want to push until Election Day because you know that that there are going to be a big turnout of Republicans. Those numbers are going to tighten up on Election Day. But, um, you know, it's also a good way to sort of get Biden talking about something other than Afghanistan, which is what's occupied all of Washington today. So it kind of helps everybody, it sounds like. Rick, you've you've studied and been involved in in some pretty interesting races here. If this were not Larry Elder and Jeannie mentioned Elder, this is a a conservative radio talk show host. If it had been someone else, uh, could this be a very different race? Uh, you know, it's it's this is the funny thing about a binary race like this. You, first, you have one question you got to answer, which is, do you want to have a recall? That's really the key mm-hmm. question. Then who benefits from that is a group of, you know, uh, uh, 10 uh, people, any one of whom could have emerged. It just turns out in this case, Larry Elder emerged. Uh, but you've got to remember the, the vast majority of the people who uh, are voting against uh, or voting for the recall, I mean, voting against the recall, aren't aren't sitting on Larry Elder, right? They're going to go find somewhere else to go. And that would consist, cons- really significantly change the second question if you get to the point yeah. where uh, those people actually cast a ballot for the second choice. Would this be a different conversation, Jeannie, if Republicans had a less controversial, we'll say, candidate? I I don't know, actually, in this particular year, but I do think whatever happens here, particularly if the Republicans lose big, we're going to hear the election was stolen. But I also think this shows a sign that there is some life in the Republican Party in California. We don't talk about it a lot. Democrats have to take it very, very seriously. The homeless situation out there is tremendous. The economic struggle out there is tremendous. And Democrats are getting the blame for that. Republicans, they don't have the numbers yet, but there is life in that Republican. Republican Party out there, and Democrats have to be very cognizant of that fact. Just ask Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's right. Uh, there's another big race. You know, this is uh, the fastest hour in politics, and so we have to just slide in what's happening in Boston. And by the way, you'll be able to hear a lot of coverage on both races and special coverage of the Boston mayoral preliminary on our Boston station uh, tomorrow night, 106.1. Uh, this is an interesting one. We're going to have a major change 
in an old city, and it's one that I know pretty well, and I know you do too, Jeannie, uh, with, with a, a candidate of color, no matter who wins, uh, taking the corner office in the city of Boston. It looks like a one-two. Again, this is a preliminary, and, uh, and Michelle Wu has been a darling of young progressives in Boston, appears on track to, to take the first spot. It's a big question about who'll take number two now. That's right. And and what a historic change. Regardless of what happens, it's going to be a historic night and a historic election. I don't think people outside of Boston may quite realize that it has so far only elected white men as mayors. And this is going to be a change regardless of if Wu carries the night tonight, which it looks like. I mean, there's going to be two top holders, but if she comes out at number one. Yeah, tomorrow night, by the way. Tomorrow night. Gonna, yeah, I may I'm already sorry. be late for this. Good Lord. I, I'm getting excited about it. I'm sorry. It's tomorrow night. <laughs> How about this race, uh, Rick? Boston is a very different place than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. I mean, the, the incumbent, Marty Walsh, I mean, uh, Labor Secretary, he's, you know, he's right out of old school Boston. Uh, right. uh, and and you're, you're right to point out, this is a seismic shift in city politics. And so I think it's, it's, it's going to be a fascinating night. And I think that... Uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of who comes into it because, it, again, it's got a runoff uh, in November. So uh, two candidates will emerge from tomorrow night. And uh, we all expect Michelle Wu, Wu to be one of those. And then the question is out of the rest of the field who, who emerges. And they're all pretty much tied. So it'll be a fun one to watch. And uh, I think great implications for the, the city of Boston in the future, but also could influence how the state votes. Uh, this is a big change. And those things in Boston usually reverberate statewide. Well, we're talking statewide then. Do you guys expect Charlie Baker to continue and run again uh, as uh, governor of Massachusetts, Jeannie? You know, I would expect that to happen, but of course he may have other designs, but I do think that we may see this, as Rick was just talking about, bubble up. And so we may be looking at broader shifts. We've already seen shifts at the congressional level in Massachusetts. And so this is a state that is prepared to move into the, you know, into a new generation here with a lot of exciting young progressives in particular. One of them is Ayanna Presley, of course, a member of the squad, Rick. And uh, Massachusetts has suddenly become, instead of kind of a rubber stamp uh, for for liberal politics, has become a bit of an agitator on the progressive side. You've got others like Jake Auchincloss, but Ayanna Presley specifically has really changed the tone and tenor. Joe Biden uh, is is often not seeing eye to eye with her. Joe Kennedy lost in his effort to beat Ed Markey for Senate. Is Massachusetts going further left, or is it uh, is it still kind of a mixed state when it comes to politics? This this, this is what you got to love about Massachusetts, right? Yeah. A state that elects Republican governors consistently. Right. With a red I mean, Mitt down Romney, the right? With a red stripe right down the middle, if not circling it. Sure. And uh, and so I I think these are great questions because like obviously everyone's always looking at big movers and, and, and Massachusetts has always been a big mover nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've, they've had lots of presidential candidates and, and, and I think we'd have to consider Charlie Baker, a guy who, if he's, if he makes a decision not to run for reelection, he's, he has the potential to becoming a presidential candidate in 2024. Wow. Listen to you. Donald Trump's not going to be endorsing that campaign, Rick. No, Donald Trump will not Baranis. like this, but uh, he, he, he's called all of the Republicans yes. a rhino at yes. some point. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, just a taste of what's to come tomorrow. From Boston to California, we've got a lot of politics to cover. It's not always just here in the bubble in Washington, but that's where you'll find me back here at this time tomorrow, and I hope I see you too.
on the fastest hour in politics. Sound on. Traffic and weather ahead, as always, here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top 302 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.